Hello, this is William Fink of Christogony.org, and this is Friday, September 2nd, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We were on um, Radio Wednesday on the Battle of New Orleans, an AM radio station in New Orleans, Louisiana. Well, I guess everybody knows that. We didn't really advance the program and announce the program too far in advance. I probably should have announced it sooner. They have a um, a website player, and we also broadcast it on our backup stream. We had five listeners. Only the people that were in our Wednesday night Bible study that evening had, had um, some of them had chose to listen to it, and that was about it, because we didn't really announce it in advance. They're going to have me back in a few weeks. They only gave me 40 minutes the other night, so I crammed as as many provocative statements into 40 minutes as I possibly could since in my estimation, the hosts really didn't even know how to talk to me or what to say to me. I, I mean, I know that they're prepared and, and I know that um, they're on board with a lot of our ideas just from a more mainstream position and, and, and they're not aware of all of our ideas. I don't know if they'd be on board with them all, of course. They probably wouldn't be, but that's okay. That They're... um. I'll use the nice term and say that they're patriots and and they're aware of the Illuminati and they're aware of the Jewish question to a certain degree, which I'm surprised for AM radio hosts. I thought the program went rather well, even though I really only had, I, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 minutes to talk and most of that time they were taking callers. We had some Judeo tards call in trying to argue over the details of scripture with me, which I think is not a good place to do that in an AM radio format when you really only have five and ten minute chunks, but people get up in their feelings over our message, they get butt hurt, and they think they're going to call in and argue with us, that's not going to work, it's not going to work out too well for them, I'll say that. So they said they'd have me back possibly in as early as a few weeks from now, and we'll see how that goes. It, it's um, only one small AM radio market. It, it's the internet to us is a national market. We may not have as many listeners, but we have a national, a, a, a global market. That's the outreach we want to have. And, and we do our best to build our internet presence. We can only do so much. This is the 87th installment of our presentation of Paul's Epistles. And it begins a presentation of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. This first part is subtitled, The Last Prophet is Christ. But of course, as in all of our epistles, we have, or we will spend a good portion of this program explaining what we believe to be true about the circumstances under which the epistle to the Hebrews was written, to whom it was written, why it was written, and who wrote it. And of course, we believe that Paul of Tarsus wrote it, or we wouldn't be presenting it at this point in our New Testament commentaries. Several things about this epistle to the Hebrews have been a subject of debate throughout Christian history. 
including the identity of the author, where and when it was written, and to whom it was addressed. We will rather confidently answer all of those questions here, even if some of our proofs are only circumstantial. Once you see the whole package, I believe that you will also be persuaded of the truth of what we are about to aver. First, it is evident from the closing salutation in the final verses of Hebrews chapter 13 that Paul of Tarsus is the author. While he doesn't mention himself by name, there he says, Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. This promise is similar to others made by Paul elsewhere in his epistles. However, that alone does not prove Paul's authorship. Unlike all of his other epistles, this one has no opening salutation. But that, too, is for an important reason. Now, many of those who acknowledge that Paul is the author of this epistle claim that it was written while he was under arrest in Rome. However, that is not true. They base that claim on the next verse of Hebrews chapter 13, where it says, Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints which is also a statement sounding very much like Paul, although we would translate it somewhat differently. And then it says, They of Italy salute you. Now, on the surface, that last phrase seems to support the assertion that the epistle was written in Rome. However, it actually does precisely the opposite. In the original Greek wording of that statement, there is a preposition Apo, which denotes separation and origin. If Paul were in Italy, he did not need that preposition, but only the genitive case noun that he had used to denote the origin of those people whom he meant to describe. Using the preposition apo, he is actually saying that these individuals were from Italy, and it becomes evident that he is describing people who had originated from Italy, but were not necessarily in Italy as he was writing. Paul was indeed allowed to receive visitors as he was detained in Judea, and many Judeans from abroad frequently visit visited Jerusalem, especially for the feasts. Caesarea, being on the coast, was the usual port of call for people going to and from Jerusalem, which we also see in Paul's own travels. And Caesarea was also the place where Paul was held in bonds for two years, as it is recorded in Acts chapters 23 through 27, during which the opportunities for visits from traveling Christians of the circumcision, who continued to keep the feast as Paul had also done, must have been frequent. The conditions under which Paul were held are recorded in Acts chapter 24, where it states that Felix would keep him detained, and he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. So all of the circumstances under which Paul could have written this epistle 
in Caesarea and had visitors from Italy as he wrote it are fully evident. But that's not the only proof of its being written in Caesarea. In verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 13, which we have just cited, we see that Timothy must have been under arrest. And then, by the time Paul wrote this epistle, Timothy was released. While the accounts of Paul's arrests in the book of Acts are very concise, it is evident from the records that Paul was not arrested alone. It is also evident that Timothy and others were with Paul when he was arrested. From Acts chapter 20, we see both Timothy and Aristarchus in the company of Paul as he travels with Luke and his other companions from the Troad through Miletus, where he met with the elders of the Ephesians, and on to Judea and Jerusalem, where his arrest had occurred. Then in Acts chapter 27, two years after his arrest, during the whole time that he was held in Caesarea, Paul is sent to Rome in chains, and Aristarchus is a prisoner being transported along with him. Aristarchus, a Roman of Macedonia, also had a right to have his case heard by Caesar, rather than in Judea. Luke had written, and enter in Acts chapter 27, and entering into a ship of Adramidium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, which would make him a Roman citizen, being with us. If Timothy were in bonds with them, surely Luke may have also mentioned Timothy, since he was much closer and dearer to Paul than Aristarchus was. This is the same Aristarchus of Acts chapter 19, where Paul had the troubles in Ephesus and Luke wrote, and the whole city was filled with confusion, and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. So, Aristarchus must have been arrested with Paul in Jerusalem, because he was traveling with him through Acts chapter 20 and remained imprisoned along with Paul until they were both sent to Rome. But Luke's concise accounts usually only follow the central character, and we have no details concerning Timothy because he was released. We can conjecture that Timothy was released because he was not a Roman citizen, and therefore... Perhaps Agrippa was not lying, even though he was a Jew, where Luke wrote in Acts chapter 27, in verse 32, Then Agrippa said unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. Then, when Paul writes his prison epistles from Rome, he mentions Aristarchus, where he describes those who were with him in Colossians and in the epistle to Philemon. But Timothy was not with Paul when he was sent to Rome, because, as it says in that passage of Hebrews chapter 13, Timothy had been released. So Timothy did not go in chains with Paul to Rome, although Aristarchus did. Therefore, 
Timothy was released from imprisonment in Judea, in Caesarea, not in Rome. Once Paul was settled in at Rome, being under house arrest and managing his own affairs, he wrote to Timothy and asked him to come to Rome to assist him. And that letter we now have in our Bibles as to Timothy, or Second Timothy. All of this means that Paul wrote the epistle to the Hebrews from Caesarea, where he was under arrest for two years. And he probably wrote it in that, in the early part of that period, since he was expected to be released, or he did expect to be released. So he had evidently not yet been forced to assert his right to appeal to Caesar. Once he appealed to Caesar, he could not possibly be released until going in bonds to Rome for his case to be heard there, and Paul must have understood that circumstance. The year in which Paul traveled to Jerusalem and was imprisoned was 57 AD, and as we have established in our chronologies throughout our presentation of the book of Acts, Paul was arrested that same year. So the best estimation for the writing of this epistle is either late 57 or early 58 AD. But it was written before Paul was sent to Rome in late 59 AD or perhaps in early 60. Luke was with Paul during this entire period as the book of Acts informs us. And that accounts for the style of this epistle. Hebrews is a very eloquently written letter, written in the hand of one who was educated in Greek, and Paul admitted not being educated in rhetoric, even though he was well read in the Greek classics. So Luke is the ideal candidate for its authorship. The opening verses of all three works, the Gospel of Luke, the Book of Acts, and the Epistle to the Hebrews, are all very eloquent works of literature written in a style which we esteem is very similar. And so they are throughout the, throughout the body of works. Many so-called scholars, based on epigraphical evidence alone, reject the notion that Paul had authored all 14 of the epistles attributed to him. But they also seem to be purposely ignorant of the fact that these epistles were mostly written by Paul's companions, under Paul's guidance, and for that reason the writing style varies from one epistle to the next. For instance, the epistle to the Romans is very eloquently written, but I would never attribute it to Luke. It also contains the thoughts and ideas of Paul of Tarsus, and Luke was with him when it was written. But it was written by Tertius, another of Paul's company of whom little else is known. And this leads us to another issue which is why the epistle to the Hebrews had no salutation. As we see in Acts chapter 21, 
The people of Judea were confused as to why Paul taught many of the things which he did, especially concerning the rituals, the ceremonies, or, as Paul called them, the works of the law. There, Luke records the words of James as he addressed Paul after Paul gave an account of his ministry, where he wrote, And when they heard it, meaning when they heard the news of the acts of Paul's ministry, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Judeans there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law, and they are informed of thee, meaning Paul, that thou teachest all the Judeans which are among the nations to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. This contention had been brewing among the apostles for some years. Paul addressed it in his epistle to the Galatians, which was written sometime during 52 or 53 AD, as Paul had been in Antioch and was planning to visit Galatia. The record of this journey is given briefly in Acts chapter 18. We establish this sequence of events and the dating for them in part two of our presentation of the epistle to the Galatians, probably sometime last year. Before the writing, before writing the epistle to the Galatians, Paul encountered Peter in Antioch and contended with him, and with Barnabas, and with some of the other apostles over this very manner, which is described by Luke in Acts, in this chapter of Acts chapter 21. And then, Paul wrote about the encounter a short time later in Galatians chapter 2. In that chapter, Paul contrasted justification in Christ to the justification which is by the works of the law, and that is that issue is of primary import throughout this epistle to the Hebrews. The epistle to the Hebrews sets out to explain Paul's position in answer to those very issues which are raised by James in those records of the book of Acts while asserting and demonstrating through the scriptures that Yahshua is the Christ, the author of the epistle has the expectation that his readers have already accepted the fact that Yahshua is the Christ. So the intended audience is a Christian audience. He then seeks to establish the consequences of recognizing Yahshua as the Christ, the change in priesthood, for instance. And he gives the reasons for the abolition of the rituals once it is accepted that Yahshua is the Christ according to the scripture. The epistle to the Hebrews is clearly Paul's answer to the words of James, which are recorded in Acts chapter 21. And the clarification of the issue with the apostles at Antioch described by Paul in Galatians chapter 2. This context further stands to prove that Paul is the author of the epistle. Theoretically, if Paul placed his name in a salutation at the front of this epistle, he risked its neglect. 
If he used his name, it is probable that those many Judeans of the faith, which James described in Jerusalem, would have discarded it before reading its arguments. Since, according to the statement of James recorded in Acts chapter 21, they had already rejected Paul. Therefore, instead of a salutation, as he had made in all of his other epistles, the epistle to the Hebrews instead presents an immediate argument that the Son, referring to Yahshua Christ, is the vessel through which the Word of God now comes into the world. And at great length, it proceeds to describe the consequences of the gospel of Christ for those who remained in the old covenant traditions. Finally, with this understanding, of why the epistle was written, we may see to whom it was written. Just before writing this epistle, as we have previously established, and not long before his arrival in Jerusalem and his resulting arrest, Paul had written his epistle to the Romans from the Troad. In Romans chapter 9, Paul offered a prayer for his kinsmen in regards to the flesh, those who are Israelites, whose is the position of sons, and the honor and the covenants and the legislation and the service and the promises. In Acts chapter 21, while James must have addressed Paul specifically, Luke's words describe a plurality of those who were with James and who evidently shared and expressed his sentiments. These are the Hebrews. Paul wrote to them in Hebrews chapter 13, assuming that they knew Timothy. And Paul writes to them, addressing them as Hebrews because the word was used to describe those in Judea who clung to the Hebrew traditions of their fathers, rather than adopting the ways of the Greeks. But we cannot rule out the Christians of Antioch, who were following the lead of those who were with James in Jerusalem, and among whom were also many of these Hebrews. The many Judeans who adopted the ways of the Greeks during the Herodian period were naturally called Hellenists. Even Josephus mentioned the Hellenization of many Judeans during this period. And there are mentioned in the New Testament people in Judea who were Hebrews who had Greek names, which is a sign of at least a mild Hellenization. The King James Version translated the word for Hellenists as Grecians in Acts chapter 6, 9, and 20. In Acts chapter 6, long before Paul of Tarsus appears, there is a dispute between Hellenists and Hebrews, and evidently the cultural divide was strong among Judeans who were liberals who became Hellenized, and Judeans who were traditionalists and retained the signification of Hebrews in Acts chapter 6, because all of the Christians of Acts chapter 6 were Judeans. They were not Gentiles yet, as Peter had not yet been called to the household of Cornelius. The household of Cornelius, they were the first 
of the dispersed Israelites of the nations, the so-called Gentiles, to be baptized as Christians, to receive the gospel by Peter's own words. So the Grecians and the Hebrews of Acts chapter 6 are all Judeans and the terms are used as cultural designations. Judeans who were Hellenized versus Judeans who were traditionalists. And that is the way Paul must be using the term Hebrews here. So Paul's Hebrews were the traditionalists among the Judeans, who, as we see in Acts chapter 20, were persuaded to one degree or another by Christ, but who nevertheless insisted that they should maintain the Old Testament customs I'm sorry, that's Acts chapter 21, that they should maintain the Old Testament customs which distinguish them from the scattered Israelites of the wider Roman world. Examining the time subsequent to Paul's writing, we can assess both the necessity and the efficacy of such an epistle having been written in the manner in which it was. In the writings of Justin Martyr, in his dialogue with Trifo, written about 140 AD, it's one of his three surviving works, there are two apologies of Justin, and it is the dialogue with Trifo. I believe there are only a few small fragments of any of his other works, if any exist. In his Dialogue of Trifo, written about 80 years after this epistle to the Hebrews was written, we see two groups of Hebrew Christians were described by Justin. Those who clung to the laws of Moses and despised all other Christians. And those who clung to the laws of Moses and nevertheless got along well with other Christians, not forcing the Mosaic laws upon them. Some of these early Christians of either party were certainly forerunners of the group later known as the Ebionites, a sect which is known to have generally despised Paul of Tarsus. However, it seems that Paul's methods in writing Hebrews were indeed successful. While Justin Martyr did not cite Paul personally or even seem to be familiar with any of his other epistles, the early Christian writer did employ the epistle to the Hebrews. He cited it in his writings. And he was persuaded along the same lines which Paul had been concerning the law of Moses. Justin, who was probably of a Greek family but was born and raised in Samaria, seems not to have known much of Paul or of the epistles in his name and they are not mentioned in his first or second apology or in his Dialogue of Trifo. Ostensibly, if this is true, because many of his other writings are lost, or his many other writings are lost, Justin's ignorance of Paul can indeed be attributed to the rejection of Paul in Judea. We have yet to read all of Justin's work, but we did have access to these surviving works that we mention here by which to make this general assessment.
However, in spite of his seeming ignorance of Paul's other works, and contrary to the doctrines of the Ebionites, or those espoused by James and the others in Acts chapter 21, Justin Martyr's persuasion, in agreement with the content of the epistle to the Hebrews, is evident in that same description from the dialogue of Trypho, or Trypho, in chapter 47, where Justin said in part, But if some, through weak-mindedness, wish to observe such institutions as were given by Moses, from which they expect some virtue, but which we believe were appointed by reason of the hardness of the people's hearts, along with their hope in this Christ, and wish to perform the eternal and natural acts of righteousness and piety, yet choose to live with the Christians and the faithful, as I said before, not inducing them either to be circumcised like themselves, or to keep the Sabbath, or to observe any other such ceremonies, then I hold that we ought to join ourselves to such, and associate with them in all things as kinsmen and brethren. Ostensibly, Paul wrote this epistle to the Hebrews to persuade his brethren in Judea that circumcision and the rituals and ceremonies of the laws of Moses were no longer necessary in Christ and that their virtue could not be derived from those things as we see Justin Martyr explain that some of the Judeans who were Christians still expected their virtue to be derived from their performance of the rituals and ceremonies. Of course, Paul did teach that the keeping of the commandments of the law is necessary, as Christ himself had also taught. And we may further conjecture that evidently Paul was also concerned for them, as he had expressed in the epistle to the Romans, in chapter 9, because if they did not break away from the temple and from the Edomite-controlled administration in Jerusalem, they would suffer likewise when Jerusalem was destroyed, which Paul understood was about to happen, as he also indicated to the Romans in Romans chapter 16 where we see that Justin Martyr had cited Hebrews, although he had apparently not been familiar with Paul's other writings, we see that Paul's strategy in writing Hebrews was indeed successful. As it did indeed have an impact on at least some of the Christians in Judea. Now, all of these opinions of this epistle to the Hebrews, we have developed exclusively from our own studies of Paul and the other New Testament writings, and we generally despise commentaries written by the Christians of the denominational sects. But looking for assessments of this epistle from certain early Christian writers, such as Irenaeus and Tertullian, we happened upon an introduction to the epistle to the Hebrews from a commentary, critical, practical, and explanatory, on the Old and New Testaments by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, which was published in 1882. Here we will quote from the first paragraph only, and and one line from the second paragraph, Because although there are a few statements with which we disagree, 
We found that it independently supports many of our own assertions where it summarizes what some early writers thought of this epistle. They're just not all collected in one place. On the canonicity and authorship of Hebrews, first they quote Clement of Rome, and they say that at the end of the first century AD, Clement of Rome copiously uses it, adopting its words just as he does those of the other books of the New Testament, not indeed giving to either the term of Scripture, which he reserves for the Old Testament, and that's because the canon of the New Testament had not been formally formally established, but certainly not ranking it below other New Testament acknowledged epistles. As our epistle, meaning Hebrews, claims authority on the part of the writer, Clement's adoption of extracts from it is virtually sanctioning its authority, and this is in the apostolic age, Clement being the first post-apostolic Christian writer whose works survive. Then they go on to explain that Justin Martyr quotes it, and he does in Trifo, or Trifo, I should say, Justin Martyr quotes it as divinely authoritative to establish the titles Apostle as well as Angel as applied to the Son of God. And note that neither of these men are said to have attributed the writing of Hebrews to Paul, and of course they did not, and neither did Irenaeus, which we will see below. And Jameson and Fawcett and Brown say of Clement of Alexandria, that he refers it expressly to Paul on the authority of Pantahinus, the chief of the catechetical school in Alexandria, in the middle of the second century, saying that as Jesus is termed in it the apostle sent to the Hebrews, Paul, through humility, does not in it call himself apostle of the Hebrews, being apostle to the Gentiles or nations, but we do not agree with Clement's interpretation of Hebrews 3.1. Paul is not saying that Christ is the apostle to the Hebrews. Paul is saying that Christ is the chief apostle of the faith, regardless of who professed it. They inform us that Clement also says that Paul, as the Hebrews were prejudiced against him, prudently omitted to put forward his name in the beginning. And we also deduced that, and we actually deduced it long before we ever read this, believe it or not. And that also, according to Clement, it was originally written in Hebrew for the Hebrews, and that Luke translated it into Greek for the Greeks, whence the style is similar to that of Acts. And here we would disagree, and Clement of Alexandria is not writing until the second century. Here we, or the third century, I'm sorry. Here we would disagree that Paul ever wrote it in Hebrew. And we would assert that Luke alone penned it in Greek, as the style of the writing is entirely Luke's. It's not Paul's at all. And they go on to say that he, meaning Clement, however, quotes frequently the words of the existing Greek epistle as Paul's words. So we see that Clement really had no Hebrew copy. He only had a Greek copy, and that defeats his own argument. Origin 
they say. Similarly, similarly quotes Hebrews as Paul's epistle. However, it is homilies. He regards the style as distinct from that of Paul and as more Grecian, but the thoughts as the apostles, adding that the ancients who have handed down the tradition of its Pauline authorship must have had good reason for doing so, though God alone knows the certainty with the certainty of who was the actual writer, that is probably transcriber of the apostles' thoughts. And they go on to say that in the African church, meaning the church of the Roman and Greek Christians in northern Africa, in the beginning of the third century, Tertullian ascribes it to Barnabas. And of course, we must agree, disagree with Tertullian. And they go on to say that Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyons, is mentioned in Eusebius as quoting from this epistle, though without expressly referring it to Paul. And Irenaeus is from just shortly after the time of Justin Martyr. About the same period, Caius the Presbyter in the Church of Rome mentions only 13 epistles of Paul, whereas if the epistle to the Hebrews were included, there would be 14. So the canon fragment at the end of the 2nd century, or beginning of the 3rd, published by Muratori. Now, Muratori was a Catholic scholar who discovered and published this ancient fragment of canon. And he published it in 1740. But the fragment is believed to be from about 170 AD to perhaps the early 3rd century. And that canon apparently omits mentioning the epistle to the Hebrews. So they go on to say that the Latin church did not recognize it, meaning the Roman Christians, did not recognize it as Paul's until a considerable time after the beginning of the 3rd century. Thus also Novation of Rome Cyprian of Carthage, and Victorinus, also of the Latin Church. But in the 4th century, Hilary of Poitiers, Lucifer of Cagliari in 371 AD, Hilary of Poitiers in 368 AD, and Ambrose of Milan in 397 AD, and other Latins, meaning other Roman Christians, quoted as Paul's, and the Fifth Council of Carthage in 419 formally recognize it, reckons it among his 14 epistles. Now, I believe we have proven that the epistle belongs to, belongs to Paul by all of the evidence, both circumstantial and direct, which we have stated in our introduction here this evening. So we see where we are corroborated and where we don't agree with some of the early Christian writers. In reference to our assertion that the writing is similar to that of Luke, the same source, the introduction to Hebrews from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, the same source agrees, but in an odd way, where it later says, and I quote, as to the similarity of its style to that of Luke's writing, this is due to his having been so long the companion of Paul. Now, we would not agree that Paul was 
more eloquent than Luke and that Paul's eloquence wore off on Luke, we would agree that Hebrews is similar to Luke's writing, but that is because we would assert that it is Luke's writing. Paul's other letters are not similar because they were written by other hands, but also on Paul's behalf and under Paul's guidance. Evidently, Paul dictated the ideas in his letters, what was the man who laid out what was going to be said, but the people who wrote Paul's epistles for him, as we see in Galatians, he had someone else write it, as we see in Romans, he had someone else write it, as he mentions elsewhere, that he had serious problems with his eyesight, and wrote in his own hand, with very large letters, his salutations. So he did not write his own epistles, they were always written by one of his companions, the people who wrote out Paul's ideas must have had much leeway in how they were actually going to word the sentences. So the style varies from epistle to epistle. In this translation of the epistle to the Hebrews, I'm sorry, This leads me to discuss one more aspect of the style of the epistle to the Hebrews. There are frequent claims that this epistle could not belong to Paul because it is so different in its tone and in its perspective than his other 13 epistles. Well, that's just nuts. This epistle is not much different at all, as we shall see. Paul teaches all of the same things here concerning Christian doctrine, which he had taught in his previous epistles. However, the difference is that here, he is teaching those things from an entirely different perspective to people who from childhood and for many generations had heard the Old Testament scriptures read to them each and every Sabbath as well as on the several feasts each year. These people were expected to be much more familiar with the scriptures, and these people were actually practicing all of the rituals and ceremonies of the law. So all of the differences between Hebrews and the other epistles are accounted for in that simple understanding. In this translation of the epistle to the Hebrews, which we had made from the 27th edition of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greque in March and April of 2003, and which we revised in May of 2004, we observed the readings of the following manuscripts. The Codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, which are both of the 4th century A.D., the Codices Alexandrinus, Ephraimi Siri, and Frerianus, which are all of the 5th century A.D., and the Codices Claromontanus and Coislinianus, both from the 6th century A.D. Aside from these were observed readings from the following papyri, designated only by their numbers as they are listed in the Novum Testamentum Greque. P. 
from the 3rd century, P13, which is estimated to date from the 3rd or possibly 4th century, P17 and P89, which are both estimated to date from the 4th century, and P46, one of the Chester Beatty papyri, which is estimated to date from circa 200 AD. Of course, some of the manuscripts in papyri are dated from the archaeological providence underlying their discovery, but many are dated mainly by epigraphical means, by the style of writing employed in their creation. And with this, we will turn to the text of Hebrews chapter 1. On many occasions, and in many ways, in past times, Yahweh had spoken to the fathers by the prophets. At the end of these days, he speaks to us by a son, whom he has appointed heir of all, through whom he also made the ages. And firstly, well, firstly, and, and I didn't address it in our notes here, the apostles believed that they were in the quote-unquote end times, and that the return of Christ was imminent. That is what Christ wanted them to believe. He wanted them to believe that his return was imminent, so that, as he often says in the Gospel, they would behave as if the return of Christ was imminent. Now, the idea that Christ is the Son, Christ the Son is the heir of Yahweh God, is expressed often in the parables of Christ in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 21, in Mark 12, in Luke chapter 20. However, in Romans chapter 4, Paul describes Abraham himself and his seed or collective offspring as the heirs of the world. There is no discrepancy, but the apparent conflict may cause confusion in the minds of some casual readers of Scripture. It is also exploited by those who would seek to corrupt the meaning of the promises which God assured to Abraham. Christ is not the seed of the promise. Paul clarifies the relationship in Galatians chapter 4, where he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption, I'm quoting the King James Version, that should say, the position of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because they are sons, they are already literal seed of Abraham. Because they are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into their hearts. Wherefore, you are no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then then an heir of God through Christ. 
So the heirs are all those who through the loins of Abraham were at one time under the law, were at one time the servants of God in Israel, as Yahweh and Isaiah declared Israel to be his servant, but who are now better than servants and heirs of the world through Christ. Any who reject Christ had no part in any inheritance just as any who are not of the seed of Abraham have no promise of any inheritance. The advent of Christ does not nullify the promises to Abraham or to his offspring. But, as it is explained in the opening chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and as it is also explained in Romans chapter 4, the advent of Christ is to confirm the promises made to Abraham and to his offspring. In Romans chapter 4, Paul said that the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul had explained that the seed of the promise was Isaac. It is not Christ. And explains that the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Children, plural, not singular. The children of the promise are counted for the seed. Those who assert that Christ alone is the seed of the promise so that they can annul the promise to Abraham, they are lying. Using the plural children as well as the plural for heirs in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, Paul does not mean to attend here that Christ is the only heir. Rather, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is excluding Abraham's other children, those through Ishmael and the sons of Keturah, and showing that the promises were narrowed down to Isaac, and ultimately Jacob received them, while Esau also was excluded, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 9. So Christ is the heir of all, but the children of Israel retain their promised inheritance through Christ, and he indeed confirms the promises to the fathers as it is announced in the scripture. Christ is also the ultimate prophet of God in all senses of the word. Ostensibly, Paul had written this epistle to the Hebrews around 57 or 58 A.D., and it would be at least another 35 or so years before the Apostle John was able to record the revelation of Yahshua Christ. So Paul did not have the benefit of reading the revelation. Nevertheless, here Paul informs his readers that Yahweh at one time spoke to their fathers through the prophets, but now he speaks to them through the Son, Yahshua Christ. As we described this very passage in a recent presentation from the prophecy of Zechariah, we will quote a paragraph here. To the Greeks, there were different uses of the word prophet. In the New Testament, we see all of these employed. First, from a Christian perspective rather than from the pagan, a prophet is an interpreter of the word of God. Of course, the pagan perspective puts God in the plural. And that is fine. From the Christian perspective, it's fine. Second, a prophet is a revealer of things otherwise unknown, the secrets of men's hearts, which Paul describes, for example, in the epistles to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we see New Testament prophets of that sort as well. But for those who would give oracles for telling the future, 
their time is past. As Paul of Tarsus had said in Hebrews chapter 1, and I will quote these verses from the King James Version, as we had in Zechariah, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he is appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So the last of that sort of prophet is Yahshua Christ himself, and his word is set forth in his revelation. It is proper to repeat the words of Christ regarding what we perceive to be in the future, but it is not proper to prophesy future events, or when they will occur, when Christ himself did not reveal them explicitly. When Babylon finally falls, we shall all know it with certainty. So Yahshua Christ is the last of men who may say, Thus saith the Lord. He is the last of men who may authoritatively dictate the will of Yahweh God to men. All others after him can only hope to determine the will of God through the interpretation of the scriptures, through the gospel, and through the revelation of Christ. Then, with good intentions, they may edify their brethren by application of those interpretations. As Paul even said, they would be interpreters of prophecy in the Christian church. The best example of that is found in all of Paul's epistles. The Apostle Peter also shared Paul's opinion in this matter, where he had written in the opening chapter of his first epistle, and this is a lengthy quote, and we will get to, the, to it at the end, but we think that we had to present the entire citation. And if you call upon the Father, who without respect for the stature of persons judges each according to work, you must conduct yourselves in fear for the time of your sojourn knowing that not with corruptible things, with silver or gold, have you been redeemed from out of your vain conduct handed down by your fathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, Peter is speaking to, quote-unquote, Gentiles, to non-Judeans, to Israelites of the, of the dispersions. So the vain conduct is their idolatry. But with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb blameless and spotless, indeed having been foreknown before the foundation of the society, but being made manifest upon the last times on account of you, those who through him believe in Yahweh who has raised him from among the dead and has given honor to him, consequently for your faith and hope to be in Yahweh, your souls having been purified in the obedience of the truth for brotherly love without hypocrisy. From of a pure heart you should love one another earnestly, being engendered from above, not from corruptible parentage, but from incorruptible, by the word of Yahweh who lives and abides. Since all flesh is as grass, and all of its glory as a flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls off, but that which is spoken by Yahweh abides for eternity. Now this is that which is spoken, which is announced to you. And that's the key passage here, is that last one. So according to Peter, the word of God which abides forever is the gospel of Christ, which was then being announced to the nations.
and that agrees with these first two verses of Hebrews. Likewise, in Revelation chapter 19, we see that the angel of Yahweh had told the apostle John that thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This also agrees with the opening statement of this epistle to the Hebrews, where we see that now Yahweh speaks to men through the Son and not through any prophet. Therefore, we must conclude that in this day and age, God does not speak to us through men, but continues to speak to us through Yahshua Christ. Men may be prophets in the Greek senses of the word, which describes one who interprets the word of God, or of one who has the remarkable ability to reveal the secrets which are stored in other men's hearts, but not in the sense where one is speaking for God or predicting forthcoming events as the will of God. Those things which belong to the former prophets, those things are now left exclusively to Christ himself. Men can only hope to explain what he has already proclaimed. Paul continues to describe Christ and to extol him, who being the radiance of the honor and the express image of his substance and bearing all things in the word of his power and the Codex Vaticanus has manifesting all things in the word of his power, bringing about a purification of errors or sin, has sat at the right hand of the majesty in the heights. In Isaiah chapter 52, in a passage which is clearly a messianic prophecy directly connected to the gospel of Christ, we read from verse 6, Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful, and this is the connection to the gospel, very clearly, and Paul quoted this in Romans in connection to the gospel. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. So as it is recorded in John chapter 15, when Philip, an apostle of Christ, said, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us, Christ responded in turn and said in part, Have I been so long a time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Isaiah had explained in advance that in that day, related to the proclamation of the gospel of salvation, it would be Yahweh himself who would be doing the speaking. They shall know that it is I, my people shall know, Behold, it is I. I am he that does speak. By this also we should recognize that Yahshua Christ is God. 
as both Isaiah and the Revelation assert that he is the first and the last. The Adamic man was created in the likeness and image of God, and there is much philosophical dispute as to the distinction of those terms. However, the image of God is described in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, where it says, For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. With that, it should be understood that while the likeness of God may refer to the physical appearance which God created for man, the image of God is the reflection of the eternal spirit within the Adamic man, of which Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So Paul tells his readers in that chapter, And as we have borne the image of the earthy, the likeness of Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, the likeness of God, the spirit, the image of, the etern of God's eternity, as Solomon called it. But Yahshua Christ is God himself. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, For in him dwells all the fullness of the divinity bodily. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul described Christ and the gospel, where he mentioned the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. Earlier in Colossians, Paul had written that Christ is the Im image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And we will see the subject of Christ as firstborn raised again later in this epistle. Christ could only be the firstborn of creation if indeed he is Yahweh God. Christ could only be the radiance of the honor and the express image of his substance if indeed he is Yahweh God. The throne of God is also the throne of the Lamb of God, as it is described in Revelation chapter 22. Where in verse 2 here in Hebrews, Paul says of Christ that by Yahweh God, he was appointed heir of all, through whom he also made the ages. We see that once again, the ages of this world were created on account of Christ and through Christ. And in Colossians chapter 1, Paul wrote of Christ that he is before all things, and by him all things consist, where we see once again that Yahshua Christ must be a manifestation of Yahweh God himself. There will be many other statements which are made in this epistle, which inform us that Yahshua Christ was a manifestation of God himself, so this epistle is consistent with all of Paul's other epistles in this respect. Where it is announced that the world or the ages were created through Christ, by Christ, and that he is the firstborn of that creation. Many people assume that the spirit of Christ was created in heaven and sent down into the physical body, and they use the spirit of God coming down upon Christ like a dove to describe that. But that's not true. It's not true at all. Christ is the firstborn of that creation as an expression of the foreknowledge of Yahweh that from the foundation of the world he knew, he knew as soon as he created the first thing 
that he himself would have to take an active part in his own creation. So Christ is the firstborn of all creation in that sense that from the beginning, before he created anything, Yahweh knew that he himself would have to participate as an element of his own creation. That is the glory of the foreknowledge of God. And this idea, we believe, will also be expressed in different ways later in this epistle. For now, Paul continues to describe and to extol the Christ, becoming so much better than the messengers or the angels. He has inherited a name so much more distinguished beyond them. To which of the messengers did he ever say, You are my son, today I have engendered you, or begotten in the archaic language? In chapter 1 of his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul spoke of Yahweh God where he said in reference to his power, which he, which he produced in the Christ, having raised him from the dead, and sat him at his right hand in the heavenly places, over every realm and authority and power and dominion and every name being named, not only in this age, but also in the future. So we may imagine that the messengers, or angels, of which Paul speaks here, are heavenly angels, and that is fine. But we may also imagine that they are earthly angels, and that is also correct. Paul here is contrasting the prophets and their message with Christ and his message. And now God speaks not through the prophets, but through Christ. The messengers of God have been both heavenly as the burning in the bush which Moses had witnessed, or earthly as the prophets themselves were indeed messengers in that sense. The prophets themselves are angels. Here, Christ is distinguished from them all as only Christ among all of the messengers of God was described as being the directly begotten Son of God. As for the word engendered, which is a synonym of the archaic word begotten, because of its technical precision we preferred it when we made our own translation. <coughs> Here in verse 5, Paul informs his readers of the result of the earthly ministry of Christ while quoting from the second psalm, Psalm 2-7, in relation to Christ. The psalm is a messianic prophecy in its entirety. But the pertinent verses are verses 6 and 7, and we will read them. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Then the final line of the psalm demonstrates its messianic nature 
where it says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So, here we see that the son is the king set upon Zion, and all they who despise him are doomed. While the psalm speaks about David in the short term, David is a type for Christ. And even the, the prophecy Messiah in the books of the prophets, long after David is dead, speak of the David to come who will rule over the people of God. And Christians have always interpreted those statements as referring to Christ, where we see that David is indeed a type for Christ. Christ is likewise set as king over Zion. And Zion here is an allegory representing the people of Yahweh, the children of Israel, regardless of their geographic location. An overarching theme of scripture is found first with 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the children of Israel reject Yahweh as their king and demand an earthly king. Then in Ezekiel, In one of many places where the punishment of Israel is described, Yahweh says, As I live, saith Yahweh God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out, will I rule over you. And the purpose of their punishment is revealed. Ultimately, Yahweh will rule over the children of Israel in the person of the earthly king they originally insisted upon having. And that earthly king is Yahshua Christ. So in the providence of God, the people will get their way and be ruled over by a man. But that man will nevertheless be God himself. God is the Father and God is the Son. But Paul continues, And again, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Concluding the verse. Here Paul quotes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, in relation to Christ. And we'll read from verse 12. And when thy days be fulfilled, speaking to David, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. The same promise is repeated in 1 Chronicles 17. And we'll read from verse 12. He, meaning the son of David, he shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take away my mercy from him, as I took it from him that was before thee, meaning from Saul. And I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. While these scriptures immediately applied 
to Solomon, as Yahweh spoke to David. Many of the events in the lives of David, Solomon, Joshua, and others were cited in scriptures as types for the ultimate Messiah who would be the true salvation of Israel. So, for example, where Yahweh had spoken to the children of Israel, and in the immediate sense the words apply to Joshua the son of Nun, in a transcendental sense they were interpreted as having referred to Yahshua Christ, where it says in Exodus chapter 23, Behold, I sent an angel before thee, to keep thee in the way, and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him, and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. And the same is true of the words which immediately applied to Joshua the son of Nun in Deuteronomy chapter 18. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. And even though the immediate application of those words was to Joshua, in the book of Acts, it is asserted that they apply to Joshua Christ. So here in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5, we see words which apply to Solomon in the immediate sense, as it was Solomon who would build the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem. But Solomon could not build the house of God in the transcendental sense, as that was the task of the Christ, who was the ultimate son promised to David, as he is the only son that could establish the kingdom forever, something which Solomon failed to do. And it was prophesied that Solomon could not do it. It was prophesied in Deuteronomy that all of the children of Israel would be carried away captive. So, in the foresight, in the foresight, in the providence of God, these words applied to Solomon in an immediate sense, but they applied to Christ alone in the transcendental sense. Paul again referred to Christ as the builder of the house of God in Hebrews chapter 3, where he compared Christ to Moses and he wrote, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has built the house, referring to God as Christ, has more honor than the house, referring to Moses as a mere element of the creation of God. Moses is part of the house. The builder of the house, referring to Christ, is worthy of higher honor. So Moses was only a part of the house, but Christ is worthy of more honor because, as Paul says, Christ is he who has built the house, meaning that he must be Yahweh, he must be God. By that reference in Hebrews chapter 3, we also know that Solomon is a type for Yahshua Christ in that aspect, for which Paul cites this passage from 2 Samuel 
chapter 7 and 1 Chronicles chapter 17 in reference to Christ here. King Solomon built a temporary house, but Yahshua Christ builds a house that shall stand forever. The prophet Zechariah, as we have recently explained, informs us that the house built for the woman in judgment would be built in her captivity, the woman being Israel. So the Apostle Peter in chapter 2 of his first epistle refers to Christians from among the nations of scattered Israel and turning to Christ as lively stones built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. That spiritual house is the body of Christ found in the children of scattered Israel, Israel scattered abroad, who accept his gospel, the woman in judgment. As we see in the Revelation and in Zechariah. Paul continues to extol Christ even further. Then again, verse 6, then again, when he introduces the firstborn into the inhabited world, he says, and all the messengers of Yahweh must worship him. All the messengers of God must worship Christ. There goes Muhammad, right out the damned window. In fact, right into the lake of fire, where the bastard belongs. This passage, when he introduces the firstborn into the inhabited world, seems to be quite obscure, but it's not really. The phrase inhabited world, first, we will treat that. The phrase inhabited world is from the Greek word oikumene, Strong's number 3625, which referred to the dwelling place of man on the planet and not to the planet itself. The word appears in Luke chapter 2, and it is translated as world in the King James Version, where it says that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world, all the world, should be taxed. All the oikumene. But the reference is only to the Roman world, which is the small part of the planet that Caesar had the authority and the ability to tax. That is the world of the scriptures. Christ is the firstborn of that same world, which is the world of Daniel 2.38, where the prophets saw a succession of four great kingdoms that would rule wheresoever the children of men dwell. And those kingdoms ruled over practically all of the white nations of the earth. And they didn't rule over any Negroes. They didn't rule over any Chinamen. They didn't rule over any Latin American squat monsters or Asian subcontinent untouchables. Those kingdoms ruled over practically all of the white nations of the earth who were considered the children of men. Rome was the fourth in line of those great kingdoms. 
followed by the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks. I'm sorry, preceded by the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks. So the concept of the world in the time of Christ must also be limited to the way in which the corresponding words were used both in Daniel 2.38 and in Luke chapter 2. We today cannot honestly take the concept of world in scripture and force an application of it which exceeds those bounds that it originally described. The phrase, and all the messengers of Yahweh must worship him, is a quote from the Septuagint version of either Deuteronomy 32.43 or Psalm 97.7. In the Psalm, which in the Septuagint is actually numbered as the 96th Psalm, the reference is not as complete. But in the Psalm of David we read, Let all that worship graven images be ashamed who boast of their idols. Worship him, all ye angels. Now, in the Masoretic text, I believe that's God's, but I didn't check the Hebrew. However, the reference made by Paul here is more than likely taken from the passage found in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, the appropriate passage is found in the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses recounts the sins of the children of Israel. And Yahweh says through the prophet that he will scatter the people on account of those sins, something which happened to the children of Israel many centuries before Christ and many centuries after Moses. So, as the remedy for that scattering, the song also holds out a promise of hope and salvation which we read from verse 35. So I'm only reading the end of the Song of Moses. In the day of vengeance, I will recompense whensoever their foot shall be tripped up. For the day of their destruction is near to them. And the judgments at hand are close upon you. For Yahweh shall judge his people and shall be comforted over his servants but he's going to destroy his enemies. For he saw that they were utterly weakened and failed in the hostile invasion, the camp of the saints, and were become feeble. And Yahweh said, Where are their gods on whom they trusted, the fat of whose sacrifices you ate, and you drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them arise and help you, and be your protectors. Behold, behold, that I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I will make to live. I will smite, and I will heal. And there is none who shall deliver out of my hands. For I will lift up my hand to heaven, and swear by my right hand, and I will say, I live forever. For I will sharpen my sword like lightning, and my hand shall take hold of judgment. And I will render judgment to my enemies, and will recompense them that hate me. 
and I will make my weapons drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh. It shall glut itself with the blood of the wounded, and from the captivity of the heads of their enemies that rule over them, meaning the enemies of the children of Israel that rule over them, these Edomite bastards that we see today, this is another prophecy which is very much like Revelation chapter 19 and is actually prophesying the same thing. And it goes on to say, and this is the verse that Paul quotes, Rejoice ye heavens with him, and let all the angels of God worship him. Rejoice ye nations with his people, and let all the sons of God strengthen themselves in him. For he will avenge the blood of his sons, and he will render vengeance, and recompense justice to his enemies, and will reward them that hate him, and Yahweh shall purge the land of his people. In other words, he will cleanse the land which his people dwell in. It may be that this is what Paul is referring to where he had written these words when he introduces the firstborn into the inhabited world. Because in order to give his people salvation for their sins, Yahweh God knew all along that only he could save his children and would have to come as a man in order to accomplish that salvation. In Psalm 89, in part, we see that David is a type of Christ. And it says, from verse 26, He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. Paul in turn described Christ in Colossians chapter 1 as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Throughout the law, the firstborn has the preeminence, and Christ is firstborn because he is Yahweh God himself, manifest as an element of his own creation. In Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks of Christ as the firstborn in relation to the children of Israel, and he says, For whom he did foreknow, the children of Israel, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. And all messengers of Yahweh was, must, I'm sorry, and all messengers of Yahweh must worship him. Christ is the last of the prophets, as he is the son through which God now speaks to man. There are no longer arising any other prophets who may speak for God. All of the angels or messengers of God must worship Christ, or else they are not legitimate messengers of God. With this, 
Christians should know that there is absolutely no validity in Judaism and there are no prophets in Judaism which seeks a different Messiah and there is absolutely no validity in Islam which proclaims yet another prophet besides Christ and neither Islam nor Judaism worship Christ rather they are both completely opposed to Christ and they are all bastards headed for the lake of fire Neither is there any validity in any other so-called religion or any other alternative path to God. They don't exist. Don't believe those Jewish lies. As Christ himself has said, as it is recorded in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. And in the end, Christ is God. And there is no other path to God. And Christ came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So no other people have a path to God. To close with the digression. The Jewish concept of a Messiah is represented in scripture in Luke chapter 4. Where we see a devil ostensibly some proto-Jewish international banker, point out that all of the nations of the world, point out all of the nations of the world, and say to Christ, all this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered to me, and to whomsoever I will I will give it, if thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. That's the Jewish Messiah. The Jew wants power over all the world's nations, and to have even God worship the Jew. But the Christian concept of a Messiah may best be summarized in the 86th Psalm. All nations, whom thou hast made, which is not all nations, all nations which Yahweh made, shall come and worship before thee, O Yahweh, and shall glorify thy name, for thou art great, and doest wondrous things, thou art God alone. The Christian wants God to rule over the nations and to be free of the Jew. Yahweh willing, we shall return to this point in Hebrews chapter 1 next Friday. Tomorrow night we continue with our presentation of the Protocols of Satan, which are actually the expression of the devil found in Luke chapter 4. Praise Yahweh! Thank you for listening, and good night.